happy International Podcast Day to one and all. I am so excited to have the privilege to participate in this new-to-me holiday, though technically it's been around since 2014. And if you're anything like me, you might even be scratching your head wondering if every day at this point has been claimed as a holiday of some sort. Well, according to nationaldaycalendar.com, the answer is yes. And, wait for it, apparently six other quote-unquote holidays fall on September 30th as well. <laughs> I can't wait to tell you what they are, but first, let me welcome you and, hey, Make yourself comfortable as we dive in. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, so as I said, it's International Podcast Day, and here, family... Here, these are the other holidays on the calendar per nationaldaycalendar.com, sharing this occasion with us. There's Orange Shirt Day, which ironically, I didn't even realize, and my son wore an orange shirt to school today, so I was like just vibing with Orange Shirt Day. International Translation Day, that's an important day. National Love People Day. I like that one. I really like that one. National Hot Malt Cider Day. I mean, I could go for some cider. National Mud Pack Day. Now, I don't know exactly what a mud pack is, and I'm just getting kind of the images of some friends that love to do, like, tough mutters. And I don't know if that's a mud pack, but those peeps are strong. So I don't know. Maybe it's a we like to get muddy and be extremely active day. I don't know. That could go so many different directions. Anywho, last but not least, it is National Chewing Gum Day. But I mean, literally, Orange Shirt Day is opening my eyes to the reality that anything could be a holiday, right? Like, let's celebrate Rock on the Sidewalk Day. And uh, that's no offense to the orange shirt day lovers out there. You know, rock on. No pun intended. <laughs> Personally, I think some of these holidays could benefit us every day, like National Love People Day. Always a good plan. And while some may argue too much of a good thing is just that, too much, I wouldn't mind a more frequent encore of National Mulled Cider Day because I do, I do love myself some mulled cider especially in the fall. It's just oh, the spices and it's the smell and it's the warm cup in my hands. It's just all really, really lovely. I like it. I like it. In fact, I'm, I'm doing this, people. For, for today's reel on my Getting Real campaign, if you haven't seen this on Facebook or Instagram, National Hot Mauled Cider pretty much has to happen, I think. I mean, it is that holiday after all. 
So I'm going to put a link to National Day Calendar's write-up for International Podcast Day, the, <laughs> the featured holiday amongst other holidays today, on this episode's blog post at ocdfamilypodcast.com. But also, I just want to take a moment to say on this note, seriously, thank you to the OCD family community for your support. Thank you. Something that I've always loved about podcasts is how you can really zoom into a topic, take deep dives into learning, binge episodes when life allows time for it, or even just engage when it's convenient for you. And the response to OCD Family Podcasts has been nothing short of phenomenal with consistent growth since before the first show even launched, really. But we seemingly exploded in a big way with our reach this past week. And I say our because I couldn't do it alone. Your likes, shares, follows, five-star reviews, they continue to make this content more accessible. And I'm not going to pretend to know that much about all the techie algorithms because it's definitely over my head. But I do know that regardless of the quality of the content provided, certain strategies and knowing how to play the game with the hashtags or titles or search engine optimization, they make a huge difference. But I don't have an interest in playing the game. I'm a mother and a wife first. I'm a therapist to courageous warrior clients and families. And I have an interest in conquering OCD. I have an interest in helping loved ones grow into their best selves while walking alongside our beloved OCD sufferers, learning more about evidence-based practices and dishing up a serving of hope whenever I can. Also, real quick, if I can, real quick is kind of an oxymoron for me, I guess, but another way that I'm going to choose to observe International Podcast Day is to shout out to some of my favorite podcasts. I love The Emily Show with Emily D. Baker. Emily D. Baker. I love me some Emily D. Baker. Hilarious, informative, fair, smart, funny, genuine. Love it. I also love Fair Game with Leah Remini and Mike Rinder. Unlocking Us with Brene Brown. And Zach to the Future with Mark Paul Gossler and Dashiell Driscoll. Just to name a few. Some of these shows literally carried me through the pandemic, and all of them have taught me something. And what I also really like is they're all very different in very different ways. And I love that I can zoom in and just take a better look, a deeper look at content that matters to me. And I hope that this podcast and this community that we are creating is providing that for you too. Ultimately, the numbers, they don't matter to me. Doing this content is worth it, even if it only helps one person. But since there is such a continued need for awareness and support, both for OCD sufferers and their loved ones, that's you, boo. If you would be willing to like, heart, share, or follow OCD Family Podcast to help spread the word this International Podcast Day and moving forward, I would be so appreciative. We're better together. So if you're wondering how, how can I celebrate today? I'm sure, right? You were like waking up like, oh, what am I going to do for International Podcast Day? Aside from maybe sipping on some mold cider and translating mold cider into another language while wearing an orange shirt. Uh, I don't know. But I know that if you could like, share, or provide a five-star review for one of your favorite podcasts, 
it would be so appreciated. Also, if you hop on over to OCDFamilyPodcast.com, I've been tackling some big projects to bring more support and awareness to you. Subscribing to the email list can give you a heads up on upcoming guests, series, giveaways, and the like. Also, I have some OFP, that's OCD Family Podcast, merch available in the store, including some exposure journals, which are amongst my favorites. Yes, they are blank journals for tracking exposures, SUDs. That's our subjective units of distress scale. So how distressed we're feeling during the exposure with the intrusive thought while resisting our compulsions. It can be used for writing imaginal scripts or images, you name it. But this is the thing. They're dotted journals. And I don't know, have you guys heard of these? They're, it's, it's a, I listen, it's a whole thing, which can be really, really fun. And I'll just warn you now, uh, the possibilities for dotted journals are endless, especially if you open like the YouTube vortex. So I'm just saying you've been warned, you've been warned, and you could really do some fun things with a dotted journal, especially when you let your imagination go wild in the process of ERP. So just wanted to note that shipping is available worldwide and proceeds go to support operational costs for this podcast, which again have been worth every penny of bringing this content to you. I love that today I get to celebrate International Podcast Day by bringing in such a trailblazing guest in Reverend Katie O'Dunn. She has come and brought awareness, support, and actual action to these important conversations around faith and OCD. So welcome. We're so excited to have Katie O'Dunn with us today. Reverend Katie O'Dunn, she's the founder of the Faith and Mental Health Integrative Services, an organization helping individuals with OCD and related disorders live into their faith traditions as they navigate evidence-based treatment. Prior to this, she spent seven (laughs) years as the Academy Chaplain at Woodward Academy in Atlanta, Georgia. While serving in this role, she also served as a consultant on interfaith programming for schools around the country. Katie is an IOCD lead advocate and ordained minister with the United Church of Christ and an endurance athlete tackling 50 ultra marathons for OCD, which is really impressive. Very, very impressive. It's hard work. She's currently pursuing her doctorate at Vanderbilt, an excellent school, to continue with her focus on faith and mental health. And she has already graduated from Candler School of Theology at Emory with her master's in divinity and her certificate of religion and health. So, Katie, I'm so excited to have you today. And I have been a big fan of the faith and mental health conferences that started a couple of years ago. And it's so wonderful to just have an opportunity to sit down with you. So thank you for being a part of this. And I'm like, look at me talking with Katie. I love that. I'm excited to be here. I'm talking with Nicole. That's awesome. That's right. Look at us talking with each other. I love it. So first of all, we've talked a little bit on the podcast about scrupulosity OCD, but it is a complex concept. And so I would love if you could kind of help break down what scrupulosity OCD means for you. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about scrupulosity, we're either really talking about moral or or religious. And I always like folks to know when I talk about any type of OCD, as I'm sure you talk about throughout the podcast, OCD is OCD is OCD. There's lots of different ice cream flavors, but it's all the same ice cream. <laughs> so 
It really, it's gross ice cream. It's really gross ice cream. That's not ice cream you want to eat. It's all OCD. But OCD always latches on to, as we know, the things that are the most important and the most significant to us. And in these particular areas, it's latching on to with your religion or your morality, your moral compass. With religious scrupulosity in particular, when we say that, we're talking about someone who is having particular obsessions that relate to their faith tradition, but it's about the OCD. It's not about the faith itself. They might be having obsessions that they are not engaging in their rituals appropriately, that they are going to go to hell, that they've committed a horrific sin, that God is mad at them, that they're not living out their faith tradition in the way that they should. And they're engaging in these compulsions that sometimes can look like regular religious rituals, but they're not. They're actually driven by the OCD as opposed to an authentic version of their faith. Sometimes the tricky thing with religious scrupulosity can be you might see someone praying very often or completing kind of ritual washing or purity rituals, depending on the tradition. Mm -hmm. And it might look like, oh, this person is just really getting into their faith. When in reality, it's a product of these obsessions that they're experiencing. And these are just compulsions seeking to alleviate the obsessions. Yeah. So you're making a really good point. Some of the rituals and depending on what your faith tradition is, or even sometimes cultural, we can add in like some cultural faith traditions, family traditions that are derived from faith traditions. There are certain ways that we may order things and do things. We might pray in a certain way. We might have a certain liturgy. We might have a certain process to confession. And so OCD loves to take something that has meaning and purpose and then twist it and skew it and make it a big, scary, intrusive experience. And so I think that that can be kind of tricky for people to sometimes wrap their mind around because there is a piece of faith and depending on what faith tradition and depending on kind of your pastor, priest, shepherd of that faith tradition, the way it's communicated sometimes can be very strict and can be very, I mean, something in the Midwest that we would say is like fire and brimstone, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, uh, yeah. yeah, if you play cards, you're going to hell. So, uh, and that that was an older tradition. I think a little bit of that exists, but a lot has morphed in this day and age. And yeah, it's like, how do you differentiate just going to kind of a strict understanding of what it means to be a believer in your faith or a practitioner of your faith and where it crosses a line into obsessional and scrupulosity? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it can be different for, for different people. And it can sometimes get really sticky, especially when we're talking about there are individuals who have experienced situations of religious trauma where it does get even more complicated. So there are all these different layers. But in the most basic sense, I, I, I'll even show folks a chart that I'm working with and ask, what is the function of the thing that you're doing? What's the function of the thing that you're engaging in or the ritual that you're doing, the prayers that you're doing, that you're engaging in, the confession that you're doing, whatever that is. And often if the response is, well, I'm doing this because it brings me meaning, because it brings me hope, because it brings me closer to God, because it brings me joy. I would say that's a value-driven activity. Mm -hmm. If you're doing that directly as a result of anxiety or guilt or shame or fear, or it feels really urgent and like you have to do that just right, 
I would say that that's probably a function of OCD. Now, now you brought up the tricky part is there are traditions that it can seem like, well, you're supposed to be afraid, right? Or, or <laughs> that that's something that's preached in, in the pulpit. But yeah, I still think there's a differentiating factor where even often within those traditions, the reason that someone is showing up to church or to their synagogue or jamatkana on a weekly basis is because it's, it's bringing meaning. Um, it's not because they're trying to necessarily alleviate this fear mm-hmm. um, all the time. I recently had someone ask me, um, <laughs> I had someone say, you know, people pray all the time when they're afraid and it's not compulsive. And that's, that's very true. If there's a plane going down and someone is, is praying, that maybe makes sense because you're seeking to find comfort. But the difference there is you're doing it to bring comfort, to bring meaning, to get closer to God. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not praying because you're afraid of not praying. You're praying out of the fear to get back to that comfort. That's a really that's a really good point. Yeah, you may be someone that doesn't even practice a faith tradition and you get in a crisis situation and you might pray saying, God, if you're there or, you know, Allah, whoever, whoever you are connected to kind of in that faith tradition, you might say, I'm going to have this prayer because I want the comfort of like, if they do exist, feeling that sense of peace or whatever, you know, in that moment, it's not about distress. There's a big feared outcome within OCD when you start praying. And there's a fear that if you didn't pray it right, or you didn't pray it long enough, or you didn't pray the correct words, or you forgot to say something that maybe you did and didn't ask for forgiveness or absolution or, you know, that there is going to be a negative result. Maybe you're going to burn in hell. Maybe you're going to, again, depending on what that next kind of what's beyond this life. Your karma is doomed forever. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's so easy to put it in the Christian context. But really, this is like this. This shows up in so many different religious faith traditions, as well as just moral, like what makes me a good person? Am I good, ultimately good, or am I ultimately bad because of what I did here? And how do I absolve myself in that fear that you've not absolved yourself and that's going to lead to something negative or something terrible for you, for someone you love? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that is, it, it can be really tricky because I like how you labeled it. There's religious trauma. And I think people nowadays are getting a little more open to the idea of religious trauma. But I think some churches also have a very knee-jerk reaction to to that implication. And so there can be a lot of layers where that gets very, very complicated. But I think that's really helpful. What is the function of your prayer? Is it to redo it because it wasn't right? And and if it wasn't right, what does that mean? Or was it, you know, I just want to talk to my higher power. I want to talk mm-hmm. to my God and have this intimacy, this closeness, this relationship. That's different. Absolutely. So I like putting it in terms of what's the function. And also on a moral level, like if you were, if you identified yourself as agnostic or atheistic, like, how would you describe where that thought goes into obsessional? I'm sure you'd still look at the function, but what might that look like for somebody that doesn't necessarily ascribe to a particular faith tradition? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I would, it would still be very similar. We actually just came out with a new page. Well, we have a series of pages on the IOCDS faith and OCD resource site now for all different faith traditions. And we have a page specifically that relates to individuals who might not associate with a particular faith tradition, whether that's atheist or agnostic or humanist. And then we also have a moral group section. So kind of addressing both of these, these components. But, you know, one of the most common obsessions that I see, particularly with folks who are atheist, is this this idea of, well, what if God actually exists and I'm wrong about that? Mm -hmm. And that for so many becomes the obsessional thought. Well, in and of itself, if you're doing particular things as a part of that, if you're praying maybe to God, even though that isn't a part of your practice, Again, I could ask, what is the function? And it would be, well, I'm really afraid that if God actually does exist, that that I'm not going to be okay. And that's still coming out of this place of fear mm-hmm. rather than this place of meaning and this place of of connection. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if it's doing it to cross T's and dot I's in terms of, in case I really fudged this up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I better like cover all my bases here. Then that would be a clue that, yeah, I mean, because if you if you came to the point of believing and identifying with your atheism, then that would not be in sync or what we call egocentonic with your understanding of morality and faith. And so that can also be a little tool to go, is this in sync with the values of my faith? Is it value-driven? Is it egocentonic? Or is it egodystonic where it's not in line with what you experience in your faith or moral tradition. And I think that gets tricky because if when we talk about things like sins or transgressions, a lot of times people are going to feel guilt or shame about it. And they're like, well, of course, I'm going to feel egotistonic, like I shouldn't have done that. Does that mean that that's wrong? No, it doesn't mean that we can have negative emotions. Yeah about what happens, but if the function of our behavior, our prayer, or even how we think about things ends up being the catch-all, you know, dun-dun-dun, this is is what this means, then that is a good clue. That's a good clue that OCD is popping in there. And it's a very common place for OCD to pop in because, as we've discussed, what is important to you, that's where OCD tends to sink its tentacles in and say, Okay, this matters to you. So I mean, I'm going to put in the pressure here. And now, you know, and it can be really subtle in the beginning. Oh, I don't know if I prayed long enough. I fell asleep while I was praying. Oops, like who hasn't? But you know, yeah. But it, and then it it takes on all different forms. Yes, and it, it gets the more the more that you engage, just like with any subtype, right. it it takes on kind of a life a life of its own, and that can be that can be really tough and. The further you get into that, in addition to having really, no, well, we we all have intrusive thoughts all the time, but noticing these thoughts and noticing your obsessions and engaging in these compulsions, you also might be at a place where you're questioning your faith to begin with or questioning what your values are. And, you know, going back to the point, OCD really latches onto the things that we care about and it twists them. It twists them all around. So I have so many folks who will come to me and say, well, my faith was really important. I think it is, but now I'm afraid of it and I'm doing it because of this. And it can even be really hard for folks sometimes when we when we talk about act and when we talk about moving towards your values, because sometimes you can get so looped in that it's like, well, what are my values 
to begin with. Um, and I like to tell folks, whether it's in a faith context or another context, if OCD is latching onto it and if it's twisting it, probably, again, we don't have certainty about anything, but probably <laughs> because it's really important to you. Yeah. We're going to try to figure out how to help you move towards that in a way that's meaningful and in a way that's value-driven as opposed to a way that's directed by the OCD or directed by fear or obligation. Right. And that, I think, obligation is kind of a, a buzzword because I think sometimes people feel or interpret their faith relationship as obligatory in certain ways. Like, I have to do this or I'm not following the faith tradition. I'm not a real believer. I'm not born again. I'm not whatever, you know. And so that can get really muddy. But again, is it in sync with, you know, if you say, say you're in a faith tradition where you're going to work towards First Communion, like if you're a Lutheran or, or a Catholic. And if you are going, okay, this is an important part of my faith tradition because I'm learning along the way and what, what this means and signifies, and it's in sync with the value of what you've been learning in your faith and what your family practices, great. But if you're also doing it in terms of, uh, oh yeah, because if I don't, it's going to be really bad. I think really bad things can happen. And I, you know, even if I do it, what if I didn't really do it right? What if I, you know, what if I took it and I shouldn't have yet because I didn't have, what if, what if I had a thought that now I felt like I wasn't worthy of that? And then I took communion and I'm committing a, a sin or a crime against God, you know, and it can get really, really complicated. And so looking at the function of that, are you fearing the outcome? Do you feel like compelled? to do something to either minimize the level of threat, neutralize that level of threat, or avoid that threat altogether, that is a good clue that OCD is likely pulling some strings in that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and to your point, you know, I think there, there are differences with different different individuals, but there are also differences really across faith traditions and depending on your sect or your denomination of, of how we would parse some of this out. There are faith traditions that that do use the word obligatory in, in their context. So that might not be something that we're using when we're trying to figure out the OCD component. But another really great rule is the 80-20 rule. And we talk about this a lot with the Faith and OCD Task Force with the IOCDF, the idea of what are 80% of the folks in your community engaging in? What do their practices look like? And if you are feeling obligated to live your life in a significantly more rigid or extreme way than 80% of the folks within your particular space, that's also a really good indication that there might be some OCD at play there. Yeah, I think that's a really good litmus test to be able to say there's going to be some outliers, there's going to be some individual differences. But, you know, in general, is this what I'm observing other people who are experiencing our shared faith? Is this is this what they're experiencing? And it doesn't mean your experience has to match theirs exactly, but it can be a little more of an objective scale. When you can kind of look around at other people, are they having that same level of distress, especially around some of the more, you know, structured aspects yeah. of that faith tradition? So I think that's really helpful in, in conceptualizing that. So in terms of personal experience, if you would be okay with sharing about your personal experience with scrupulosity, 
I think often having an example can help us kind of digest what this might look like in real life. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's really interesting. I'm an ordained minister, but actually a lot of my OCD didn't necessarily relate to religious group, but a lot of it relates to moral scrupulosity, harm, lots of taboo themes. And um, my story really begins, like a lot of folks around age eight, my family noticed that I was walking around the rooms and touching things in a particular order. And it was because I had this fear that really the world would come to an end if I didn't. I thought I had heard something in school where I thought the sun was going to get too close to the earth and everyone was going to die and it was going to be my fault if I didn't touch things and do things in a particular way. So my parents at that point took me to my first therapist who was not well-versed in OCD, didn't diagnose me with OCD. We did lots of talk therapy, played lots of checkers. There was no mention of ERP. And with the moral components that I was going through, I pretended to get better because eight-year-old me thought that he was going to lose his job if I didn't get better and that I was going to be a bad person for <laughs> not getting better from this person who was trained in his field. So I pretended to get better, graduated from treatment, maybe better at checkers, but not really better <laughs> at OCD. I was going to say, I bet you're a mean checkers player. Yeah. Like, it really you get it. <laughs> It's that. funny. I remember actually, it's funny, and I'd forgotten about this. I remember when graduating, even from the moral group perspective, my parents coming in and and he said, you know, on this last visit, she really kicked my butt at checkers and the moral group and harm stuff. Immediately, I was like, oh my goodness, did I kick his butt under the table? Am I a violent person? Should I go to jail? <laughs> like as they're releasing me from treatment. But <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, and it's great that you can sm smile and kind of laugh at that situation because I'm sure at the time it was very threatening. But it's like, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that that's where OCD can be so, so tricky. And so I love that as an example of going of you putting on masking really like, OK, I'm I want other people to feel like they're doing a good enough job and not feel bad because, again, that sense of personal responsibility to make things right. And to keep the peace and make make sure everything everyone's okay, yeah. So you graduated and a stellar checkers player, maybe kicking butts, <laughs> literally <laughs> or metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, and well, and really, I, my OCD just just got worse throughout my life. So moving through elementary school and middle school and high school, I, I was someone who was very high functioning but in part because I wanted everybody else to be okay, particularly my family. I had was very good at putting on a mask. So externally, I looked like I was doing really well in school and in everything else and, and socially. I went through some, some hard periods where I used, you know, relationships or used alcohol, used different things to kind of cover up a lot of the emotions that I was feeling and was in some unhealthy situations. But for the most part, looked like I was doing really well. Mm -hmm. um, got to college and that very much continued. I was a division one athlete. I was the cross country and track captain. I was a double major in religious studies and human services. I had a 4.0. I was the top of all the honors. I mean, it was like externally, everything looked like I had it together, which is very much how I liked to present myself. And mm -hmm. internally stuff was just crumbling. I had gotten so good at covering up compulsions that I was engaging in a lot around checking and ovens and stoves and locks, but also related to morality and taking pictures of things and emails and making sure I didn't write something inappropriate in papers. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And 
still really wasn't letting anyone know what, what was going on. I ended up getting a full scholarship to grad school at Emory and for my Master of Divinity to move into ministry. And it was my first year that stuff really started to get bad for me. I wasn't sleeping at night. I was going back and checking oven stoves, locks, parking garages, driving back to ministry sites to make sure things were unplugged, literally driving back to my school at like two o'clock in the morning to make sure people had blown out candles in the chapel so that nothing would burn down. I mean, it was just pretty, pretty constant. And I, at that point, had a pretty good idea that it was OCD because I had taken enough psych courses that, that I actually had some idea of that, didn't know about the treatment, but told a mentor that I was thinking about getting help for this. And I was told, oh, you can't do that because you are pursuing ordination. You're getting ready to go through all these psychological evaluations. If you do that, it'll be the end of your vocation and your career. So I didn't. And I shoved it down. I lied on all my psych evaluations. I was well-versed enough that I could, even on a lot of the tests I was taking, put the opposite of things that I knew related to OCD and anxiety. And, you know, just kind of kept kept trucking <laughs> mm-hmm. and got into my first big role in in ministry in Atlanta at Woodward Academy, which was amazing, where I was the academy chaplain for 2,700 students from different faith backgrounds. It was the biggest private school in the continental U.S., and I was the first female and youngest person ever coming into this role. My predecessor had been there longer than I had been alive, and it felt, the reason I'm sharing that, it felt like so much pressure, Yeah, but it was this excitement, too, of I can continue to present in this way of somebody who has everything together. And, you know, externally there, started off doing that, that really strong. And then OCD just completely exploded. So at this point, I was in my mid-20s. And I know for a lot of folks, early to mid-20s, it can really kind of kind of hype up. Rear head in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. And it latched on to everything that I was doing really with my students anything related to morality, anything related to harm. It was, did I hit someone and forget? Did I say something mean to a student? Did I do something inappropriate? Did I send something inappropriate? All of these things. And right around that time, I I was also really responsible for supporting the community through tragedies, traumas, and losses. And we experienced a series of really challenging losses, including of, of students that I was very close with. And OCD, as it does, even latched on to that. Um, And I started blaming myself for funerals that I was doing for losses of people that I really cared about in ways that didn't make sense, but in ways that OCD told me I just couldn't let go. And I started hating myself. I got to the point where I was, you know, working 12 hour days, teaching kids about religion, doing interfaith literacy, supporting folks through trauma and grief, looking like I had it together and then going home and like sitting on my bed, trying not to call the police on myself for crimes I didn't commit. It was just, just, I was living these two worlds and I couldn't get through it. I was so good at functioning, but I wasn't there ever. I see pictures of myself and there's total vacancy. I can think of times I was making speeches and up in front of people and compulsing in my head about whether or not I hit somebody in the parking lot with my car or whether or not, you know, I, I ran, I don't know, all these different things. So hit kind of rock bottom where 
I didn't frankly know that I was going to make it. I hated myself. I hated my life. I didn't think I deserved anything. How could I be this minister and have all these thoughts? And what if this was true? Mm -hmm. And very thankfully, at this point, I received evidence-based treatment really for the first time. So I started working with Shala Nicely in Atlanta, who was amazing and has now become a great mentor for me later on down the road. And she introduced me to exposure and response prevention for the first time, which very much saved my life. It was a hard road. I was so entrenched in beliefs and my insight was really, really low at that point. And particularly, there were lots of overlaps with traumatic things that I had seen and that I had witnessed with kids. And there, there, was, there was lots of stuff there, but came out of that experience and didn't want to be quiet about my stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I got to, to where I am now. I, I realized I was this chaplain with all of these kids from different faith backgrounds who were telling me about their mental health struggles and felt like they couldn't talk to their faith leaders or they had to keep it a secret from their family or they couldn't get treatment because how would my faith community respond? And I realized I was doing a massive disservice to be a chaplain or a minister seeking treatment in secret and not letting anybody know that I did this and you can do this too. So yeah. So you wanted to be able to preach what you practice. <laughs> we <laughs> often very, hear it very literally. Yes, yeah. Because we often hear it the other way, like practice what you preach. But but at the same time, you wanted to be able to say this worked for me. And I think that, first of all, what an incredible journey and what a strong fighter you are. Because even to mask every single day, to survive through not only the weight of the responsibilities that you were holding academically, vocationally, everything that you were holding for all the people that were coming to you as a chaplain, and also dealing with the intensity, the fear. You know, one of the things we talk about here on the podcast is how these intrusive thoughts, what's unique to OCD, because we can all get intrusive thoughts. But what's unique is that those thoughts stick. And when we're doing the compulsions, it reinforces the stickiness of those thoughts staying in that loop. And so if you think about, you know, if any of us were in a crisis, if we walked outside, there was a bear, we'd be like, ah, you know, we go into fight, flight or freeze mode. That makes sense. You for years, for years, since you were a little girl, we're in fight, flight, and freeze mode. And yet you did all the things to the expectation, if not beyond, to be good enough and, and keep the peace and make other people feel okay, safe, happy. What, you know, pick a word, insert it, you were working on it. And so first of all, what a strong woman you are that you have had the strength to continue. I know you talked about hating yourself and getting to that point where I'm sure that you were thinking, about, you know, what's the point of this? I don't want to go on. And at the same time, you did. And that was no small feat. Every day, you've gotten out of bed, sometimes more more times than you like. <laughs> sometimes getting out of bed to go check oh, out things. Right. But at the same time, every day, you you did that. And so, first of all, that takes incredible strength to to weather the weight of that storm and then to be able to be brave enough especially after getting messaging like yeah if you want to be ordained you can't this isn't going to fly that's a big problem that's a 
big problem because there is this implicit understanding then to be in the faith community, you've got to, even though no one's perfect, you've got to have everything going perfectly, really. Because if people are going to believe you or if they're going to confide in you or if they're going to follow your delivery of scripture, of holy texts, if they're going to see you as a leader, then you have to have all your stuff together. And I think that is really one of the most toxic things that can happen in any organization, if you know, not just the church, not just missions, but like to have that belief because we're people and that's that is absolutely unsustainable. It's unreachable. It does not exist. There are going to be problems everywhere, everywhere. And so it's a real strength to be able to say, especially in a field where saying, hey, everything is not okay. And I have to fight that every single day, whether it's OCD, mental health, addiction, you know, it can be so many different things. And so I think it's, first of all, incredibly brave. I don't think you were selfish or hypocritical by doing that. I think you were surviving in a system that said this is how you survive. But you had the bravery beyond already fighting this for most of your life, just going, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say that I've had these these struggles. And wow, what a what a gift to people in in this world, all around the world to be able to go, you know what? It's okay to say not everything's okay. Mm-hmm. It that's okay. That's really really powerful. So I think like you weren't doing you did a service and even if you didn't come out, that was kind of reinforced by the system that you were working in. I don't think it would be selfish to go, hey, yeah, why don't you go ruin your career? Because that's what it felt like, right? I'm sure in a way to be able to to speak to that. But that also leads the way. And I think that leads to greater healing that people are often going to religious experiences, hoping to attain some of that healing, some of that, some of that intimacy with this higher power, some of that relationship. We can't be in a relationship without having some of these conversations. Not everything goes well. If you're in a relationship and you're like, everything is perfect, that's like a big old red flag because <laughs> that's not a relationship then. That's a presentation. That's, a, that's an illusion. And so I, I think that's really, really powerful. So kudos to you for being able to share that. And really what it's led to, especially with IOCDF, being able to start these faith and mental health conferences, to be able to be a consultant. How did that come about even in being able to organize that? Because when that happened, I was so excited because there were a lot of people I felt like from the faith community too that engaged and we needed that mutual engagement, mental health to the faith community and faith community to us. And then people living all, you know, through every every piece of that continuum. Yeah. I mean, so for me, it was the two components, the, the interfaith piece, because of the work I'd been doing with students who were Jewish and Christian and Muslim and Buddhist and Sikh and Jain and atheist and agnostic was so important to me because I had seen students covering up their mental health concerns or their diagnoses because of their faith tradition. So when I started coming out with my story, I was terrified and thought no one would respect me as a chaplain anymore. 
And it was actually very much the opposite. I started hearing from families for the first time, okay, we can actually talk to you about what's going on in our family. Oh, and how do we have this conversation with our rabbi or with our priest or with our practitioner or whatever, or imam, whatever that looks like for them. And so I started sharing with my school community, but then a little bit more publicly. And the IOCDF was amazing and kind of letting me not know what I was doing, but be able to bring in passions for these different areas. And so started working with them as an advocate. And Valerie Andrews, who's another one of our lead advocates and a great friend of mine, was really passionate about bringing the idea of mental health treatment specifically for OCD to the church. So we started doing some work together and putting together with some a team from the IOCDF our first needs assessment around faith and OCD. And quickly after that, it, it came to us that OCD Jacksonville was working on a faith and OCD conference, and we kind of blended together. And in some ways, it came out of nowhere within a few months of me sharing my story. It was kind of bananas. It was the beginning of 2020, and it all kind of just unfolded really, really quickly. Yeah, which was also the beginning of the pandemic. So, I mean, it was a, it was a wild time. <laughs> it was a wild time. I was transitioning for, in so many ways. I was going through a divorce at the time. I was figuring out who I was as an advocate, as a minister. Also, you know, lots of shame for me around both my mental health and around, you know, this divorce process and lots of things. What does this mean for me in ministry? And so appreciated the OCD community giving me kind of a platform to test support others who are going through similar struggles. So at the conference, we really put together pretty quickly for that first May in 2020. And we thought, ah, like, you know, a couple people come, you know, whatever. And it was like a lot of people. It was like more than 500 people signed up, which was crazy and in the best way. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time we really started to put together programming with direct tracks for, for faith leaders and for individuals with OCD and clinicians. And out of that grew a lot of the initiatives that we have now. Our faith and OCD special interest group that I lead once a month, we have 200 people in that now. And then our faith and OCD task force, which I get to lead with a group of awesome clinicians and faith leaders, mm -hmm. where we've now built out a full new resource page with resources for every faith tradition, for resources on talking to your clergy. And it's been really, really a gift. That is really, truly amazing. And I think, you know, again, when sometimes when people think, at least here in the States, religious scrupulosity, people are thinking of just, you know, what, Christian, what is that? What does that mean? You know, or maybe if you're Jewish and it's not kosher enough or what, I don't know. What does that even mean? But it really expands outside of that. And to be able to not only provide resources, but to such a wide variety of faith traditions, that is huge. And I think that is such an unbelievable resource, which you know, just wasn't there not that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it goes to say, you know, whether it's a part of the ERP treatment where you could live some, you could deal with a thought 20, 30 years and go, I'm never going to feel any relief from this and then have a new way to be able to help the brain learn to function through that, not just to be able to hold the distress, but to be able to go ahead and live your life and function, even if that distress is there, if the intrusive thought is there. 
it can dramatically change, just like the way you were able to go, well, this doesn't really exist, but now it does. (laughs) Amazing how one idea can then become this amazing pool of resources for people to come together. I think it's really important too, because you know, here I am in the in the region of the Midwest where I am. We sometimes call it the Bible Belt, and I remember when I I grew up in the Bible Belt, but I lived and had a professional life, and most of my adult life was on the West Coast, and so it's very very different than the Midwest. And when I went to graduate school for psychology to become a marriage and family therapist. That was like, wow, what do you think you're doing there? Because if people are having struggles, they need to work on the sin in their life. They need to pray about it. And a lot of the compulsions that happen for a scrupulous person were being reinforced from the pulpit. And I am not by any means saying that prayer is bad. I'm not saying that scripture reading or confession or any of these things are inherently bad. But when it stops being an issue of your faith and it starts becoming the price that you have to pay to try and be good enough or to try and keep harm from coming to you, to somebody else, that becomes a real big problem. And so, you know, we've come a long way, I would say, in the last even 20 so years on that. But at the same time, it can be really difficult in this region to go, okay, well, because if you say you praying is a compulsion, people don't take to that very well. What do you mean praying is a compulsion? That's an important part of my faith. Absolutely. But are we really praying? You know, are we really having that moment, that relational experience, that spiritual experience? Or are we trying to, you know, cross T's, dot I's and say, okay, I'm, I'm doing this because if I didn't do it good enough, like maybe I won't go to heaven and then I'm going to disappoint all these people and they might not go to heaven or, you know, whatever. It can look so many different ways. And so that can be really hard. But also, even in the Midwest, I think there are a lot of churches, a lot of leaders that are becoming more informed about this. My father has an MDiv. And when I went to graduate school, he said, you know, we were taught in our MDiv that, you know, because you're going to have people come in and for all sorts of counseling, pastoral counseling. And we were taught that they need to get right with the sin that's in their life. That's how you solve that. And that's how it was taught to a generation of, you know, baby booming pastors. And depending on where you go to school, I think that has changed mostly. But yeah, I think there's a lot more openness to it. And a lot of times I think pastors are dealing with issues that they know is way above their ability to comprehend, but they feel a little stuck as well because that person doesn't want to go to a therapist. They don't want to go to somebody else. You're my pastor. I trust you. Tell me what to do. And those pastors also get in that really sticky situation going, I don't to do and and a lot there's a lot more openness i think than a lot of mental health practitioners would realize in wanting to collaborate and go how can we support this person without feeding into the ocd and going okay this part's your area because you get that and we're going to work on the mental health here and i can work on the spiritual kind of stewardship here and so i i think it's really an important conversation to have 
it, it's so important. And, and folks don't realize that spiritual and mental health do not have to be mutually exclusive, especially in the treatment of OCD and religious scrupulosity. And it's, you know, there, there are roles for, for different practitioners and providers of care, whether that's spiritual or, or mental. And for our mental health providers in the OCD community, what an amazing thing to be able to offer exposure and response prevention, which I'll often reframe for folks as a spiritual practice in and of itself, because it helps you stop worshiping the OCD and actually get back to something that's value driven for you. But a lot of times the faith leaders are, are needed in that process to be able to help separate what's faith from what's OCD, how to continue uh, to continue to offer support without accommodation, without reassurance. And to your point, are often the front lines and are needed for a referral to be able to say, oh, I can help you in this area, but this is an area that you really should see this person for. Yeah. Um, and I think there's there's so much more openness to this now. There's definitely conversations around mental health in seminaries across faith traditions. I think still the gap is in the area of OCD and religious scrupulosity. So there's more of a gen general mental health conversation, I think, that's happening within faith communities now, as yeah. opposed to a direct conversation on mental illness and what evidence-based treatment looks like. Yeah. And I think that's really huge because that's it's a lot of progress that we are having more acknowledgement and it's not seen as the enemy, both, you know, literally and figuratively. Yeah as it can be and is put in sometimes in the church traditions. Mm -hmm. But I think that is really important. And, you know, even thinking about the mental health of our pastors and our leaders, it's it's an incredible amount of stress and pressure to be guiding people through and and feeling like even if you're ordained in your interpretation of scripture if you're in if you are ordained as someone that is able to facilitate God's word or you know it's still so much pressure to just have all the right answers and that's not what we're called to we're not called to be God on earth perfect mm -hmm. without the thank goodness that would be quite the quite the task and we wouldn't be able to do it but at the same time there's so many there's there's even a stigma around pastors going i am miserable i'm upset i need help i'm depressed i'm anxious whether it's ocd or not and so there has been a lot of progress in embracing mental health more and i think that's huge but because scrupulosity interacts and engages and overlaps so much with the faith tradition, I think sometimes it's seen as opponents, right? And instead of us against the OCD, instead of mental health and faith against the OCD and us as people just being warriors and fighting to get through the day, it, it can feel like it turns into mental health providers versus the church, mental health providers versus the synagogue, mental health providers versus whatever leader in whatever uh, capacity. Yeah. Right. And I feel like... And this can be a whole nother sticky area, and so I'm not <laughs> trying to shift the conversation. But I think even when you think about morality, politics these days very much mm -hmm. take a center stage, and scrupulosity can very much even bleed into politics. Absolutely. Because my morality means you have to believe this, and mm -hmm. it is so polarized 
right now, and it, I think it's always been polarized, but with social media, we can like air the thought before we even have time to think about it. We can put it out there. And so even scrupulosity, I think, can go into the political realm of going, if I don't do this, then that means I'm not, I'm not moral. And I'm against everybody else that is not believing this because that means they're immoral. And it becomes, it becomes this complicated thing where it's no longer just about your morality, but really you're getting caught in that OCD thought loop and your advocacy and your protest and your attempts to justify and educate people then become wrapped up in the compulsion. So it gets so, so tricky. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a big challenge. So what would you say then in terms of kind of looking at that and trying to separate what part of this is my faith or my morality and what part of this is OCD? I know that's not going to be a clean, squeaky, like easy simplification, but in most circumstances, it's complicated, it's layered. But what what tips or strategies would you have for people kind of breaking that down? Is this mental health here and this faith here or or, you know, how to think about that? Yeah. I mean, so for, for folks looking at this in their own life, I would still go back to what is the function of the things that you're engaging in, as we talked about before. But particularly with if we're talking about faith leaders or if we're talking about someone seeking to offer support in their congregation or family members, recognizing that the support of chaplains and pastors and rabbis and imams really comes in, yes, areas of of grief and trauma and grappling with big life questions and and spirituality and life transitions. But where there's a more acute diagnosis, that's really a space where if, if someone, if we are recognizing a lot of the things that we talked about in the podcast so far today, if we're recognizing someone continuing to vocalize obsessions or continuing to engage in compulsions that we think might be OCD, or even if we're thinking about another mental health disorder, that really referring to a licensed mental health provider becomes essential. But to the point that you were making a second ago, knowing that those two things don't have to exist in silos, practitioners of both faith and mental health can work together. I'm having I'm in my doctoral program at Vanderbilt right now, which I always want to plug because I think it's the coolest program. It's a new program specific to integrative chaplaincy. And the entire focus is faith and mental health and bridging the gap between practitioners on both sides. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of research done, not necessarily specific to the area of OCD. That's something I'm hoping to do more on, Mm -hmm. but where both of these components become so essential and so important to someone's recovery. I talk a lot about, for my clients, this trinity of recovery And I always say that in order to move through recovery, you need to have faith in your treatment and your diagnosis, right? Faith in yourself and also faith in something meaningful to you, whether that's the divine or a higher power or a value. Mm -hmm. All of those components become equally significant as you move through your treatment. And while your treatment, your mental health treatment provider is helping you with faith in the treatment and faith in the diagnosis and how you move through that, the faith leader can really be helping you with faith in something more, faith in the reason that you're engaging in these practices to begin with, faith in getting back to your practices in a way that's value-driven as opposed to being driven by the OCD. 
Right. So when you pray, you can pray because you want to pray. You want that, whether you see it as a spiritual act of worship, whether you see it as a part of a standard practice of kind of ritual, not in an OCD way, but in a religious practice kind of way. And I know it gets so complicated because so many of these terms overlap. And I think that's what makes scrupulosity tricky for people because they're like, well, I do have to repent. You can't tell me not to confess. That's such a huge part of my religion. If I don't, if I don't do confession, then I'm going to be in purgatory. And it's it's hard to communicate when it crosses the line from being your religious practice into an obsessional thought that is just distressing and you're not actually even getting to engage in your religious experience because you're so caught up in this loop of I must, I must, I must, I must. And it's never good enough. It's never good enough for the OCD. It may give you very, very temporary relief, but immediately it's waiting for that next shoe to drop. And so it's it's definitely really, really challenging when it comes to this. I also think there's a cultural experience around religion, not just like in society, but also within the family. And so if we look at the family culture, even if maybe some of the traditions are nominally practiced because it's just what we've done for generations, you know, it can get really tricky because some of these things, some of the the prayer or spending time in your spiritual scripture, in holy books or confession, things like that can not only be reinforced from the pulpit at times, but within your family system, there's an expectation of what obedience and proper repentance look like and other kind of aspects of faith. So in thinking about it from that aspect, can you talk a little bit about the family support or some of the areas where it can get tricky within the family? Because that definitely will speak to our audience in terms of, yep, yep, we're running into that. Yeah, no, the family piece is, is huge. So where I see this, and and so just to give some background now, I talked about the school piece. I now work around faith and OCD full-time. So my role is I work, I train clinicians around interfaith literacy for ERP, and then I train faith leaders around understanding scrupulosity. And then I bridge the gap where most of my time is spent working with directly with clients who are at clinics really all over the world and consulting on cases alongside their clinicians to help separate what's faith and what's OCD. Mm-hmm. How can we develop exposures that are in line with their values and helping them even with things like we talked about before where prayer can be compulsive, but rather than having them stop praying, how can we have them engage in these practices in a way that's meaningful alongside treatment? So I'll work with folks as opposed to saying, hey, God, please take this anxiety away to instead say, all right, please give me the strength to sit with these intrusive thoughts and to sit with all of the things that are coming up as I move back towards my faith in a way that's value driven, really making some shifts. So a lot of the conversations with folks end up involving the family. And that's why I was bringing up this component, because I would say a large component or a large chunk of the clients that I work with, a lot of things aren't just necessarily reinforced within their faith communities, but within their families, because we often share the faith of our family and work with a lot of folks that will be engaging in particular exposures around their faith practices and family members might 
not fully understand what's taking place or what's going on. And it's never just like the faith leaders we talked about. So for family members who are listening, I know it's never not wanting to understand. I know we all want to support our loved ones in these, these beautiful ways. But I think just like we would advise you to engage with maybe the treatment provider, I would encourage folks to figure out what the exposures look like, maybe engage if they're working with somebody who's doing a faith side of it or working with their faith leader and be able to have those conversations too, to figure out how can you be supportive at home. Now, what that might look like, just like with any type of OCD, is not offering reassurance. It's not offering accommodation, but it's also not shaming or questioning the particular exposures that are taking place. Um, I see that as a big roadblock with folks who are navigating scrupulosity, where you might be doing a really challenging exposure where you have to maybe write down a particular blasphemous thought. And I've heard situations where family members are like, how could you possibly do that? That's against our faith tradition. And it is it is okay to have all of those thoughts and all those feelings around something that's uncomfortable. But I would encourage you rather than vocalizing that to your loved one, to maybe have that conversation and be in collaboration with their clinician and with the faith leader so that you can fully offer support through that treatment and not make them question the things that they're doing that are already so hard for them as they navigate their Right. So it's such an excellent point because I think there is such an element of that shared distress. Like we we want our loved one to experience their faith as one of the greatest, most, you know, important pillars and foundational pieces of themselves. We want them to have a positive experience. And at the same time, they're writing down this blasphemous spot and they're and this is heretical and this is this is really really uncomfortable i kind of feel like we need to go and pray blessings over these rooms where you, they might have uttered it and you go yeah i can see where where little judy here is having some struggles with yeah. implementing this because they're now like you know going and praying over each room to cast any bad spirits out of here because judy just said something that is offensive And the reality is, it's not that Judy is saying something offensive. Judy's having an intrusive thought that is offensive to her experience of her faith that Judy has a really hard time sitting or even living with the fact that she could have this thought. Because what does that mean about her? What does that say about her family? Or, you know, what if mom and dad feel like they didn't do a good enough job of explaining the faith? We don't want to let mom and dad down. We don't want to let God down. And it becomes this really complicated thing. And so parsing out the differences is really hard depending on the content of the material. Because some of the material that people are experiencing, and that's why they're experiencing so much anguish, is they're like, you don't understand this thought of what I had about my God. And mm-hmm. I I feel like there is no absolution for that. I can't I can't undo that. But it's not you, Judy. It's not you, the um, parents that are sitting there going, Yep, we're evil, evil, evil. Um, you know, that's that's so bad, you know, but it's so hard to not have that knee-jerk reaction of that is so wrong. You can't do that. And now we oh, have yeah. we have to cleanse the house and it's like just becomes a big compulsion that everybody's participating in. And uh poor little Judy is like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, and it becomes I mean, it's becomes that that shared experience and 
I think the educational component, like I love family members that are listening to this right now because that's so that's so important. But the I'm all about collaboration, having your faith leader and your clinician and the family collaborate to offer support becomes just so incredibly essential. And I also want folks to hear, I always tell this to clients and family members with exposures that someone might be asked to do. First of all, you're never going to be asked to do something that, you know, really goes against your faith tradition. I always go with the discomfort versus disrespect principle. I always say we're never going to want to do exposures because they make us uncomfortable and they're not fun. I've never had an experience in my life where I walked into a session and said like, yes, I can't wait to do an exposure today. It's going to be awesome. Let's do this. Bring it on. Yeah, just, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> I, and I might say that as like sarcasm to my own right. I don't necessarily, you know, embrace right. that. But it's what I always tell folks is, you know, across faith traditions, we view the divine as big and as loving and as all-knowing and as powerful. And in light of that, God can handle the exposure that we're doing over here. God can handle this bit of discomfort that that we are we are living into. Yes, it might feel like we're doing something wrong, but I always say God can handle it so that we can get back to the people that God has created us to be. And I want family members to hear that in addition to folks going through treatment, that if your loved one is doing something really challenging, they're not doing it to oppose God. They need your love and support right now to know that you still love them, but also that God is still there with them, supporting them through this thing that is really challenging so that they can get back to their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I think that's such an important point. And I think something that is special about faith and OCD and kind of thinking about scrupulous OCD too is the premise is is built upon this faith mm-hmm. right and faith means that you're going to choose to believe in something that you may not have certainty in you may look to different things and and go okay that that those are foundational and i feel um like this is evidentiary or this is concrete and i can hold on to that but ultimately faith plays a role as well and so faith is all about being able to embrace the unseen, unknown pieces and going, I choose to believe this still. And OCD, the treatment is very much the same of going, hey, here are where my values are. And so I'm going to choose, even though I'm afraid maybe I did leave the candle burning and it might burn down the chapel and that would suck. I'm going mm-hmm. to choose to believe that I did everything I needed to do and I can sit with the discomfort of knowing is it burning down? Because so far I have a record of no chapels burning down yep. under me. That's pretty great. Hoping to keep that streak. Yeah, right? hoping that it's... <laughs> I love that you brought up the faith piece. This is such a big thing. And I, I, I really think that by engaging in treatment and by accepting uncertainty, we can actually strengthen our sense of faith. In many ways, I always say, I, I mean, for me, I think my relationship with God has actually grown through my treatment. Being able to accept uncertainty, sit with that while also having radical faith. And to your point, I, 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 I really believe we almost need this element of radical faith in OCD treatment where it's never saying, I believe the bad thing is true. It's saying, 
you know what? I'm having radical faith that it's probably going to be fine. Yeah. I'm accepting the uncertainty that I'm feeling right now. I I, I like to think about like, I have radical faith that my ceiling is not going to fall on me right now. I do not have certainty about who built this room. I do not have certainty about if the building plan was effective, but Based on past experience, I have radical faith that this will be fine. I can accept the uncertainty while sitting with all of that. Yeah, yeah. And I also like that um, 80-20 kind of rule, too. That you, you Kind of just a, a short little guide where you can go, yeah, you know, and, and does this happen for other people in this experience? Well, most people, like, you know, they're going through this experience and it turns out okay. And while I could be a part of the 20%, and it's possible, you know, if, if I am, I am, I'll find out. Cross that bridge when you get to it. It's like, okay, cross that bridge. You know, once you burn down a chapel, then you can be like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, I, I forget if it's, is it John Grayson? I don't know. Somebody was saying that you have to, you have to burn down at least three houses before I'll let and start letting you check the stove again. Like needs to happen like a whole series of times. Yeah. Like, the first time it's just a fluke. Yeah. And it's not for folks to hear. It's not, and certainty is not 50-50. Right. It, it really, it's, it's not, it's, that's not what we're asking you to accept. It's radical faith while accepting uncertainty. Yeah. And so if you think about it, then people with faith traditions are kind of postured with already an advantage in the game plan because this is part of what allows you to engage in your faith is that you can believe, that you can choose to believe, you can choose to have faith. And so within OCD, it's not that different. When you look at ERP and go, I can choose to say, okay, I don't know if this happened or not. I'm pretty sure it probably didn't. But either way, my life doesn't want to be stuck around whether it happened or not. I want to, what I want to do is take Judy out to Starbucks because, you know, I'm living the pumpkin spice life and I'm enjoying that. You know, Judy and I, we got a coffee date. I don't need to, I don't want to feel <laughs> consumed in this. I want to be able to just live our lives, right? And when you get to live in your life, you get to get out of your head and actually engage in these relationships, whether it's you and your family member, you and your higher power, you and your God. It's like now this is where I get to actually have relationship because I'm not so in my head. And we talked about this a while back on the podcast with even within relationship OCD. But relationship OCD can also show up in your relationship with your higher power, with your God. And so, you know, is are they really good? And what does that really mean? And are they, you know, and, and checking and looking for signs. And what does this mean? If this bad thing happened is, are they really not good? And what did you, did I put, did I overbelieve in this? And gosh, OCD, it just, it's like, it's never ending on its hamster wheel, but okay, let it have its hamster wheel. We don't need to also get on the hamster wheel. And that is that's the beauty then in treatment. And I love the the idea of this trinity for treatment even of saying I can believe, I can choose to believe in the diagnosis and in the treatment. I can choose and believe in this value. I can lean into my faith leader and actually figure out how can I get back to living my faith then mm -hmm. so that I'm not living these compulsions where I feel stuck and tortured. Mm -hmm. Literally hell on earth. Does hell exist? You're in hell right now. Is that oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. It's the worst. It's the but worst. It, but there's so much, and I'm so glad you brought that up. There's so much hope too, and that's 
such a key component, I, I think, to know. And it's something I didn't believe where when I was in kind of the pit of, of OCD, I would watch advocates speak and I would listen to therapists and I would think, yeah, okay, mine's different. I am never going to get better. That's never going to be me. So if you're someone who's in that position right now or you have a family member in that position, you know it's really hard. But I think that in and of itself is just a distortion of the OCD where you yeah. can get better. You yeah. can live a beautiful life. And we might not have a choice about having OCD, but we do get a choice as to how we respond with these evidence-based methods that work and can give us our life back. Yes. Amazing. Yes, absolutely. And I, I yeah, I, I think that's a, a really important piece to keep in mind and to remember that there is hope. And chances are, if you're engaging in a faith tradition, it's because you have hope in what it means to have that relationship with your God, right? Or you have hope and belief in what an investment in making good moral decisions means for our society, for our children's children, for, you know, for the future. And so there is still hope. In it. And, and that's the beauty of having these kind of conversations. Even if we're listening, even if we're going into a conference and we're listening or we're reading a new book or we're just considering a new idea, it's a step in not feeling alone. Because when we're alone, then we do feel like that one person that one mm percent, -hmm. <laughs> that 20, you know, if we're looking at the 80, 20, we're like, yep, we're the 20 and we're yeah. going down in a spiral tube. And it's just it's it can feel so defeating. It can feel so alone. But being able to have those conversations and going, well, OK, could it work for me? Maybe, maybe not. But could I choose to believe it could and give it a shot? Yeah. Versus every day living that perpetual cycle that OCD is going to provide. The treatment is hard. The treatment is no cakewalk. I will put that out there. It's it's not easy. Like you said, you're not like, yay, an exposure. So excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. But there is something excited about having peace from it. And once you go through some exposures and you go, oh, I've had some wins and I, that I did not know were possible. What else is possible? It's really exciting. It opens up a whole new realm of possibility to live to live yeah and i think it's i think it's the uh, i think it's peter pan the author the that says you know to live would be an awfully big adventure and it's like we can we get to and that's part of the beauty of being able to choose to even live in our faith it, it's not an either or it's uh mm -hmm. i can live even if i have intrusive thoughts and i can still have this relationship that's meaningful and important for me. And so I'm really, you know, I'm glad that we were able to speak to that. I had asked you at the beginning and, you know, Kenny and I were chit-chatting, having some fun before we started the podcast <laughs> about she just recently got engaged. So congratulations. Thank you. Yes, yes. But I was wondering, because you, both you and your fiancé are lead mm -hmm. advocates for IOCDF, which is amazing. And I was just wondering, because we, we like to also talk about what that's like in dating, what it's like in marriage. You also were vulnerable in sharing that you've been through a divorce. And so I'm sure that showed up because it sounded like it was such a hard time in your life for the OCD. And so would you be willing to talk with us a little bit about that from the couple's aspect? Yeah, no, absolutely. So 
Yeah. So my fiance is Ethan, who's fellow IOCDF lead advocate, and we do lots of advocacy work together and work around OCD. But we initially met through OCD and became OCD work and became really good friends and were a pandemic love story and fell in love throughout the pandemic. But we, you know, it's, it's, we have a lot of folks that automatically assume, oh, everything must be perfect because you both have OCD and you totally understand each other and that's Mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. And it's not the case. That's, you know, we are very happy and joyful and love each other very much, but things can be tricky when you have one partner with OCD or when you have two that have OCD. Mm -hmm. And the things that have been the most helpful for us are communication, understanding, but also understanding when we're talking to the OCD and when we're talking to our partner. Yeah. That's become a really big component. So we, I think early on with our relationship, it became really challenging in some ways because we knew what the other person was going through so well. You know that pain that they're experiencing. And sure. I know even for folks without OCD, you know, you don't want your family member to suffer. So it was so hard, even knowing OCD-related stuff, to not offer reassurance, to not offer accommodation. We both started to actually vocalize a lot because it's like, oh, you get it. I can tell you my intrusive thoughts. That's great. Yeah. In ways that weren't necessarily as healthy. And over time, we've found out that the healthiest things are to communicate and say, I'm having a tough day, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily vocalize the content of those thoughts. And in responding to your partner, again, recognizing where you're talking to them or the OCD, Ethan actually will say, oh, hi, OCD. I can't hear you. Can you put Katie back on the phone now? And he will not answer anything remotely that I say related to OCD. And I try to do the same for him as well. And it gets annoying. So we were on a car trip and I forget I was asking something related to OCD and he kept saying, I can't hear you. And I was like, what? And he's like, he's like, no, it's OCD on the phone. It's not Katie. I can't hear you. But being able for your partner to not respond to that OCD can be really challenging, but is so important for your relationship, mm-hmm. but also so important for their recovery. I think another piece is even in not responding to that, that doesn't mean that you become their therapist. It doesn't mean that you become the obsession or the ERP police. Um, It does mean that you offer compassion. So we've found the most, I think, helpful thing is being able to say, you know what, this sounds a lot like OCD right now. And I really don't think it would be helpful to respond to that. But I Mm -hmm. love you Mm -hmm. and I care for you and I'm here for you in the midst of that and offering that support to them Mm -hmm. as opposed to their OCD. Yes, yes. I think yeah, that same tool of being able to look at the what's the function of this thought and what's the function even of my response to my partner. Is it to make them feel better? Is it because I'm feeling bad and I want to help relieve some of their suffering? And I think it's a normal, empathetic, loving thing to mm-hmm. want to comfort. And it's not wrong to comfort, but we need to comfort the person we don't have to comfort the thought. Like the mm-hmm. thought, the thought isn't something we need. It's it's not like a jury here where we have to be like innocent, guilty, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're just like, wow, you're you're you. We can comfort you going through this. This is tough. I love you, mm-hmm. and I see mm-hmm. that, and that can be really validating 
while not feeding the OCD monster and giving OCD the reassurance that it's begging for at times. At the same time, I'm sure there are instances where you're like, look, I need to talk to you about this. And your partner says, this is OCD, put Katie back on. And you're like, it's not, it's not. The oh, OCD. It's, so, it's so frustrating. That's what it, it's funny because, and that's almost the tough part. We both, well, I guess it's good and bad. Generally, it really is OCD and he picks it out. And the same for me, both of us, we're very good at hiding it from other people so we can sure. recognize it in each other. Uh-huh. So even if I covertly ask for reassurance, which I should not do for anyone listening, but <laughs> he, he picks it up right away. It's like, nope, nope, we're not talking about that. And it it can it can definitely, I think, sometimes be frustrating, but we've gotten to a place with it. And I really hope that for a lot of folks listening that I, I'm even if I'm fr- frustrated in the moment can recognize he's doing that for my benefit and for the benefit of our relationship. And we also have an understanding. We're always respectful of each other. But if there is frustration in the midst of those conversations with OCD, that it's also not me being frustrated at him or him being frustrated at me. It's really the OCD kind of doing its little little thing. And, and we recognize there will be there there were uh, there will definitely be challenges you know this year as we plan the wedding and there's already been our we're both only children with OCD whose families are both like let's plan your wedding for you and we're like oh there's lots going on <laughs> but there will be challenges yeah. but i think again that communication for us um that love and that recognition that by not supporting one another's OCD we're actually supporting the relationship becomes really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be important to have those boundaries, but also not to just avoid the distress, be like, well, I'm doing a boundary here. Look at me. Mm-hmm. I'm so good at boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to not overthink it, because I think when you have OCD, it's like, well, could that really be a compulsion? Could that be like sometimes totally. we can get too caught up in the is that, isn't it? That again, we miss just enjoying one another's company or miss enjoying kind of working towards our values, working towards our goal, training for the next race, you know, just doing those different life things that that are so hard to do when you're caught up in that cycle in your head. And it's super easy to get caught up in it. And so giving yourself grace too, if you get caught up in it of going, oh, yeah, okay. Mm. I got caught up in that. All right, I'm back to I'm back on the ground here. And that's important to be able to give ourselves some grace. Again, if we come from a faith tradition, that may be one of the greatest gifts that we've been able to learn about. And so one that's super important to give to ourselves is probably a lot easier in certain circumstances to give that grace to your partner than it is to yourself. But what a what a beautiful gift when we can go, okay, yeah, it's okay. I don't have to be perfect. Well, that's good news. Mm. I got caught up in a compulsion. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, I'm back. I'm back. Okay. Game plan. Got it. I'm living my life. And being able to recalibrate is so important. And so it, it is really helpful to have a supportive spouse. It's important to have a supportive family. And it's, yeah, it can be really difficult. If you don't want to discuss this part, totally fine. You feel free to draw a boundary. But in terms of your prior marriage and how Mm -hmm. OCD showed up in that way, is that something you feel comfortable talking about? Or are you like, "Mm, I'm good. (laughs) I'm I'm on to green. Yeah, so some of it I'm good on. But it's 
you know, I mean, the biggest piece that that I'll say is I, I think from a moral scrupulosity standpoint, I really struggled after and even religious scrupulosity around, well, what does it mean about me as a minister that I went through a divorce? And do I ever deserve to be happy again? And what does this mean? And what does this look like? Do I deserve to experience joy? And there was lots of stuff very much tied up in that. And I appreciate, you know, Ethan has been incredibly supportive listening to to lots of that and and helping me parse out, you know, what's real processing of past stuff that was really, really hard and what's my OCD making me relive aspects of my life that I don't necessarily need to force myself to relive. So I think you know, that's been a process in and of itself because divorces are traumatic. Ending relationships are are traumatic and OCD can definitely get in there. OCD really impacted that process a lot for me. But at the same time, you know, it's been, I think the biggest exposure for me has been giving myself permission after my divorce to be happy and to live my life and to continue to move forward regardless of what the OCD says about it. Yeah, yeah. That's such a, I think, a powerful testament to going through healing. And some days mm-hmm. that grief or or triggers may pop up, but still just recognizing like, yes, I have value and I can be renewed. I can be restored. There's grace for me. There's mercy for me. There's life for me. Mm-hmm. That does not get defined by this one thing. And OCD loves to define life by their one thing. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. And then even if you did that one thing, it's like, and that thing right there. Mm-hmm. And you do that and that thing and that thing. And so it can be it can be really easy. But again, you know, whether we're talking mental health, divorce, when we think inside of faith communities, there are such big feelings and such big stances on a lot of different issues, right? And a lot of people would be very quick to point out the scriptures that they feel support their issues. And I'm not taking issue with people in their scriptures. But at the same time, I will say we we aren't expected to be God. Things are going to happen. And irregardless of whether your neighbor views it in a positive light or not, whether you view it in a positive light or not, this is where we get to go back to the to the F word, faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we get to say, we get to say, I, I it's not that I'm gonna go try and be imperfect. And I think a lot of OCD people are really trying to do the right thing. They really are. That's part of why they're distressed. If not, then they're like, yeah, balls of the wall. I'm just gonna <laughs> go do this thing. Cause you know, <laughs> yeah, that's my that is my value. Now that would be a different situation. But in a lot of these situations, it's you know, we're trying to do the right thing and we're not wanting to cause harm or pain to somebody else or to ourselves. And there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of terror around, could I be responsible for that, for somebody else? And so ultimately, just going back to a faith model and being able to go, you know what, I, it's not, I'm not discounting scripture in any way, but I'm also saying it's okay that I'm a human being and I have faith that I can still have a very important, a very beautiful relationship that is not dependent on one thing. Mm -hmm. It's not defined by one thing. Got that OCD? We'll say it again for the people in the back. 
It's not defined by one thing. And that's a beautiful thing. And so being able to go back to that faith and going, hey, you, you, you matter and you're worthy, not because of what you've done and or haven't done, but because you are you, because of who you are, you're worthy and you're not alone. And being able to have that relationship, whether it's with another person, with ourself, with God, mm-hmm. OCD gets in the way of all those things. And we don't have to be defined by OCD's viewpoint mm-hmm. on it. Screw you, OCD. I don't care what you think. Mm-mm. Yeah. No. And, and you brought in the self-compassion thing, too, which is such a it's I view self-compassion very much as a spiritual practice. And it's it's hard. It is super, super hard. And yet, you know, I think we often view ourselves in very different ways than we view those around us. I was a minister for a long time, giving everybody grace for mistakes they made and any mistake in my own life. It was like, well, I can't make mistakes. I'm not allowed to. Right. Right. And we, as you said, are not defined by one thing or two things or three things. We are defined by the beautifully unique, imperfect, awesome people that we are, despite any one or two or three things. And yeah. um, And despite what a thought says about us, because a thought, it's a thought. It's Mm -hmm. a thought. It's your thought. And you know what? You have great thoughts. You're amazing. We we have great (laughs) thoughts as people, but not all of them are winners. And and they don't have to define us. I think sometimes it's just so surprising when someone, especially if they're not aware they have OCD and they have a very distressing thought and they go, what does that mean about me? I must be an awful person that I had that thought. And that can show up anywhere as we've said a subtype is a subtype it's it's not like we they rigidly go in these little kind of containers yep we'll put a coin in scrupulosity (laughs) that's what you've got yeah it bleeds into all different areas and in a myriad of different ways i don't think i've ever met anyone in all the time that i've been treating or just even living where if i've experienced someone with ocd that it's just i'm like wow you really only have it in this really acute like small Mm -hmm. area of your life Hmm, that's interesting like never never and Uh -uh. and once you get that going well then it it might pop up over here or you may even have a little more headspace to realize where else it can be popping up but i think that's a a really great point to just be able to have self-compassion for ourselves. And that is so hard. You talked about earlier, like getting to that point of going, well, I hated myself. And I think a lot of people can relate to that in mental health struggles at large, whether it's OCD, or we're just looking within anxiety mm-hmm. and depression and a host of other things as well, or medical diagnoses, and people are struggling through different things, spiritual trauma, and they're struggling through different things. Was this all my fault? And, you know, it's just, it's, it is so hard sometimes to show that kindness towards ourself. And so if you're the author of the thought, it's your brain, you had it, it must mean something bad. I mean, could it mean something bad? I, sh- I guess it could mean something <laughs> bad. There's every now and then there's a real bad apple out there. We have like the Jeff and Ray Jommers and stuff like that. Like, I don't know. Yeah, there's some real bad people and they enjoy it. It's egocentric for them. They love being bad. <laughs> so for them, it's not, uh, they're not, they're not uh, feeling so bad. They're not about distressed that. by it. They're not it. distressed yeah. by it. They're like, I actually enjoy that. That's my hobby. And not to be cavalier about it, but this is the, this is a huge difference then when it's distressing. Yeah. Why is that all of a sudden you have to be the owner of uh, you have to be like 
this is this is prescriptive. This is what's going to happen. Like, no, you had a thought. You had a thought. And that was a yucky thought. So, wow. Good to know. Good to know it was a yucky thought. I don't have to. It doesn't define me. I, I don't have to be defined by that. That's wonderful. And also putting some intentionality into those positive thoughts of like, wow, I am fighting and working so hard. And I can continue to do this. I've made it this far. There are days I didn't know if I wanted to keep living. And here I am. I mean, you have done that living pandemic love story. We have the whole emergence of faith and OCD. You have created amazing waves for the better for people getting support and resources with OCD. And so I think it's powerful. So thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. This has been so fun. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. For today's application piece of how you can apply this material, consider ways that you can join the conversation. Okay. If you or someone you love is experiencing scrupulosity, and really this goes for any of the subtypes, think about who a safe person could be for you to share about your intrusive thoughts. Is it a faith leader? Is it a therapist? Is it no one? Is it both? We are better together. We are better together. So my challenge for you is to try and expand your circle by at least an N of one. And what I mean by that is essentially think of at least one person that you can add into your community of support. And you know what? If, you, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't have OCD, that's okay. We can all use some support, right? I mean, literally, we are better together. So think of somebody that you can add into your community of support, even if it's adding an advocate like Katie on Instagram, adding a big old family like the OCD family community across platforms, or, you know, if we're talking social media, it could be a whole other influencer altogether. But hey, bonus points, bonus points for finding someone that you can experience in real life, if possible. We can get a lot of support online, but I find those tangible in-person relationships, when possible, are so, so sacred. So if possible, see if you can increase your circle, your support, your foundation by at least one. And also along with that, I do want to share and draw attention to support through education and connection. This is definitely a place also where you can join the conversation. And that's with IOCDF's virtual conference. It's coming up. It's coming up in early November. I believe the dates are November 4th through 6th. Yes, I have it here. So IOCDF does a virtual conference. They started, they do a lot of different virtual elements and streams. They have YouTube channel. They're regularly posting if you follow any of their social medias or, or go even to the website at iocdf.org. You can learn about how to access this material. It is very accessible and it's available and it's free. 
to access this material on the website. But they started doing these virtual conferences with COVID, as, as I think many fields and many organizations started to do to provide content in a safe way. And so the virtual conference is an absolutely fantastic opportunity to join the conversation, learn more, and connect with other people that are treating OCD, that are living with OCD, that are parenting loved ones with OCD, that are spouses of loved ones with OCD. You name it, it's there, okay? So I just wanted to share with you about that. That's going to come up in early November. The conference does have a cost, but what I will say is if you are a person with lived experience or a family member, it is much, much less expensive than if you're going in trying to get continuing education credits and whatnot. But I have to say, it's one of, I, I have, like, I, I do so many trainings that I am never in need, but I have licenses in both California and Indiana, and I regularly need to do continuing education to keep up those licenses. And I love, this is one of my favorite ways to get content to get education because I trust them. They're reputable. They have the research and the evidence base to back up what they're saying and how they're saying it and why they're saying it. And so that matters to me. Absolutely matters to me. So if you, even if you're a clinician, if you're a practitioner, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, this is a great way to get some of those continuing ed hours. But if you're a person with lived experience, it's definitely a lot more cost effective to be able to go. I'm pulling up the website right now. I can tell you it looks like, okay, here we go. It looks like for individuals or supporters. So that's for individuals with lived experience, their families and their support systems. It is $100 to get access to the conference. It is a three-day conference running the 4th through the 6th. And I believe that after the conference, the different sessions, like the recorded trainings are available for like the next 60 days. So if you're like, man, I really, there were like three different ones I wanted to go to and they're all at the same time. You could go to one. You can participate in a live Zoom kind of Q&A time. So you can even talk, you can still have that discussion as if you were at the conference in person. But then after the fact, you can access the trainings, both from that training and other trainings. The Q&A that happens live, that does not get recorded. That does not get saved and shared. You know, depending on the forum, there may be some private health information that people are choosing to disclose there. So that piece doesn't get saved and populated, but you could literally go listen to any of the trainings, which are absolutely invaluable as well for up to 60 days. So if you're busy or you have a work meeting or a kid's game or whatever, whatever, life, you have life, right? We all have life that comes up, pops up. You can still go back and access these trainings. Also, if you're a student or a trainee, say you're in graduate school or college, there is also for $100, you can, you can learn more about OCD. You can get more information. If you happen to be members of IOCDF, you can even get, it looks like a 15% discount. So it's $85 to go. But even if you're not $100, to me, and I realize, especially in these times with inflation, $100, it feels like, oh, 
but I need that to buy three boxes of cereal. That'll virtually cost me $100. I would say this is absolutely an investment in invaluable content that can help you as an OCD sufferer, that can help you as a, a loved one and support community. Or even if you're just, you know, if you're a therapist and you're like, I want to learn more, I want to be able to learn more so that either I can at least recognize OCD enough to direct someone toward evidence-based practice, exposure and response prevention, or ICBT, great. Knowledge is power and being able to know how and when to refer them, absolutely invaluable. This is a great resource. And I love that it, it joins the whole community. I think sometimes within certain specializations, People go, okay, well, this is here for professionals. And then you guys over here, you guys that are actually living with it, you can go over here. And I'm like, no, that is a missed opportunity to not just all come together and have the conversation to make sure what we are treating is is hitting the mark, to make sure that what people are experiencing, they know that that there are research-based, evidence-based practices that can provide hope. If you're like, I would love that, and there is just absolutely no way, there's no way I can't afford that, I can barely afford again cereal. Scholarships are also available. You can check out, thanks to Northwest Anxiety Institute, it looks like they are providing some scholarships, and so there is a way to learn more and apply for a conference scholarship. So I don't know all the T's and C's on that, but definitely that is worth checking out out. So you can go to iocdf.org and find out more information. In fact, I'm just going to link the conference page too. Uh, if you look at the tabs at the top, there's more information on schedule, fees, and just different things like that. So you can check that out at ocdfamilypodcast.com. And I just want to say, I'm not a paid affiliate for IOCDF. I'm a professional member with them, so that means I actually pay them to support the dynamic, amazing work they're doing. But I am simply a person of, shall we say, in the theme of the day, radical faith in the research, in evidence-based work, in phenomenal resources, and in overall mission. So, so that's a little bit of information there. And circling back, Katie was actually telling me that there was going to be a Scroop Talk that she'll be a part of as well at the virtual conference. So take a listen. She's going to share a little bit more about what that'll entail. There actually will be a religious scrupulosity talk at the upcoming virtual conference that I'm doing with a group of folks on a lot of things that we discussed today. So please come over and ask questions. There's a bunch, but the, the other one that dating will actually probably come up that I would encourage folks to register for the conference and come to is I'll be doing a talk with Ethan and then with Shala Nicely and Kim Quinlan around OCD being chronic, Yeah, but let's experience a joyful, awesome life anyway. And we're going to be talking about all of the things that you can do in your awesome life that OCD doesn't have to control. That's right. Oh, that sounds like such a great conversation and so important realizing like you can live with this just like you can live with your eye color. You can live with your birthmark. You can live with it. You can live with this and it doesn't have to control and dictate and say that, you know, you can't have joy in your life. 
I also think like it's a misconception in culture too that people are like, if I just do this and I do this, then I can have a happy life. Well, I hope you do have happy moments in your life, yep. but it's not a constant. It's not a given. It's not to say that you won't suffer. If Absolutely, you're going to feel the myriad of all of those things. But sometimes in these mental health spaces, it's really hard to experience the positive, the joy, the excitement, the love towards self, towards others. And it's because you can feel so consumed and locked out of that. And so really it's, you know, I hope that we can have those those moments, those times, and more power to us if we can recognize it in the moment that this is a good moment because this can be an anchoring moment when it's not good. And I can remember, you know what? Sometimes times aren't good. Sure. But sometimes they're really good. And, and it's worth it. And you're worth it. We're worth it. So I love that. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Absolutely. Wonderful. It's been great. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like going in a loop while talking about screw. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com. <laughs>